Welcome to the What If Podcast with your hosts, Spencer Worth Davis and Ryan Copperood. This is the What If Podcast, and we are coming to you with a special episode this week. Very, very special. Um, we won't call it a bonus, because we'll just call it a special episode. But it is a bonus, and you're welcome. You're welcome for us uh, being all up in your drums <laughs> twice in one week, I guess. Hell, I mean, shit, you can turn it off if you don't like it, I guess. But please don't, because we like you. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> we like you a lot. Um. But yeah, we have a we do have a special episode this week. Uh, this is not on our normal pattern, as you may or may not know. Uh, we drop every Wednesday uh, for the What If podcast, and this is coming out obviously not on a Wednesday. Um, but we wanted to, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Tuesday depending Wednesday on where morning. you are. Yeah, wherever you live, that might be uh, a little different for you. Um, but yeah, so today we're coming to you with an episode that we hoped we could give you. Uh, and boy, oh boy, it turns out we can give it to you. I'm real excited that we get to share this next hour or so of audio with you. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who are not fully caught up on the What If podcast, uh, we did a couple episodes over the last couple weeks about seeing UFOs. Which I would highly recommend that you listen to first. Yes. Because this is... Very, very literally an extension of those two episodes. Yeah, there's a lot of context that uh, happens today that you will miss if you do not listen to uh, parts one and two of what if you saw a UFO. But if you're, you know, if you're down to just hear some wild stories and then piece it back together <laughs> later, like memento style, you could do that too. You can definitely do that too. Uh, we just, we just want to tell you that you your experience you. will, will, will probably be better if you can get yourself through parts one and two of what if you saw UFO, um, because they lead you to what we have for you today, which is a world premiere, a world premiere, exclusive <laughs> interview with the one and only large Michael, big Mike. Actually, he, he asked that we just call him Mike. Mike. So Mike. Mike, yeah. Mike. So Mike Knox is a guy that uh, we'll give you a little background before we dive in. Um, Spencer and I met Mike Knox at uh, the MUFON meeting a few weeks ago. Uh, and Mike had some very detailed and very, uh, I don't even know what impressive. the right. Impressive. Um, Unique unique, far out, amazing, uh, stories about his experiences with UFOs and with alien abduction and with all of Yo, the he, things. The man has a very wide range of experiences. Yeah. Um, and so we reached out to him after the MUFON meeting and after those episodes, and we were able to actually get a face-to-face interview with Mike Knox, and he invited us out to his home in northern Minnesota. Drove up there last night. Took we, a little. Took a little field trip. We did. Uh, Spencer and I drove up. Took a little <laughs> Miss Miss Frizzle. Uh, <laughs> Dude, I I forgot. To recap this until just now, but remember yeah. when we saw that dude with his truck pulled over to the side of the road, just bow shooting something with a bow out in the middle of the field? Oh my god! Like man. this man was standing on the shoulder of the highway, just shooting a we bow were, out into the field. We I don't think like, you can do that, bro. I'm pretty sure that I mean, for what it's worth, Spencer and I are kind of city boys, and we don't know, I don't know a whole shit lot about, about how that things shit. work up there. But but basically, we were probably five minutes away from Mike's house. Like we had gone into northern Minnesota by about an hour, and. 
on the side of the road, a guy had obviously gotten out of his car and was like threading an arrow I'm going to kill that into deer. his bow and was about to shoot it into I didn't even see what he was something? shooting at. Yeah, yeah. I don't either. I, I mean, it couldn't have been target practice because he was like, he had obviously pulled his car over to be like, I'm about to shoot something. I'm going to give bow. him the benefit of the doubt and say it was some sort of large animal, but like <laughs> he might have been frog hunting or yeah, something. Who knows? We do not know. Uh, but but that should give you at least I guess a little bit of context. We'll let that set the scene for where we were last night <laughs> around how how far deep we were in northern Minnesota. Um, but, anyway. but Mike was kind enough to invite us to his home and to let us kind of ask him some questions about his experience with UFOs I, and aliens. Such a great interview too. One of those dudes where you can just be like, "So Mike." And then just like yeah. sit back yeah. and he will give you story after story For after sure. story. I think you'll notice that like obviously we- on a weekly basis, me and Spencer are pretty colorful and pretty like uh, expressive. We said about 10 words the whole time yeah. last night. And and we were like pretty reserved because we didn't want to like throw this dude off and we didn't want to, you know, make him feel uncomfortable. So we just kind of, we asked some pretty subtle questions and we let Mike tell what he says has happened to him in his lifetime. Mike, take the wheel. <laughs> Baby Mike, <laughs> take the wheel. And and he did indeed, and he was excited too. He, he was very thrilled about um, telling us all of the ins and outs of, you know, kind of his life story, which yeah. as, as, as it goes, is sort of a life story that includes uh, interruptions, if you will, that include UFOs and aliens throughout. Uh, most of it, I guess. Yeah, we're we're gonna try to go through this somewhat chronologically. Yeah. Um, starting with some experiences that Mike had at a young age, uh, as a young adult. Yep. And then later in life, um, and we'll we'll kind of jump in every once in a while to to keep us on track. Yeah. But for Mike, the most part, we're gonna let let Mike do the driving for sure. So yeah, let's go ahead and dive in, and we'll start from the beginning, and we'll meet you throughout, and uh, we'll, we'll be there to greet you on the other side, <laughs> and uh, and see you out as well. So um, from from the man's mouth itself, uh, here is the uh, the UFO experiences of Mr. Mike Knox. My name is Thomas Michael Knox. I was born in 1947 in the county of Knox in East Tennessee in the city of Knoxville. I'm the eldest of seven children. One sister is all I have, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a pleasure to meet you. Mike, can we call you Mike? Big Mike? Sure, call me Mike. All right, Mike. Just call me Mike. Thanks for having us in your house. Yeah, you're welcome. You're you're certainly welcome, and I hope you stick around because we're going to see something tonight. I Um, can't wait. Hope so. It's... uh, it's a pleasure to get out and talk about this information and these experiences. And I've been doing it for years and years and years. So the first thing that uh, Mike wanted to talk about was his experience at the National MUFON Conference out in California in 2015. Yeah, Irvine, California, 2015. It was, I think, the summer of 15, he said, um, and and we'll get back into some of his earlier life stuff and his later life stuff. But um, I think maybe one of the more concrete experiences he, that he wanted to share with us. And it, it's it's one that gives context to a lot of the other stuff that he's going to be talking about, even yeah. though it's not necessarily in chronological order. Exactly. So, so yeah. So we're going to dive in quick here uh, to uh, the 2015 MUFON conference. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, Mike, Mike cites some dates, but they are from 2015 in the spring or spring or summer. And um, yeah, here, uh, here he is. We had the uh, National MUFON meeting in California, Irvine, California. And we stayed at the old Irvine Hotel. I got there on the 18th and had a meeting on the 19th. When I came out there, I had re-injured my leg, my left leg, and my Achilles tendon was totally separated. I'd been to the doctor before I went to California. He advised me to be very careful because it was separated and it could be damaged even more and that I would have to have surgery probably somewhere around Christmas because it looked like my calendar is pretty full. So that's the way it was. Mm -hmm. And I was limping and I had pain pills and I had my CPAP and I had a uh, big bag of ice and I'd gone to bed on the 19th at about nine o'clock and all the other people from MUFON were downstairs in the lounge and they were dancing, listening to music and drinking Mm -hmm. wine and having a good time. And I'm up there in pain. All laid up. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm laid up and about one o'clock this gal comes in that was my roomie. She came in, I heard her, she woke me up, it was real quiet, and she went to bed. I woke up at about nine thirty in the morning. She wasn't there. I went downstairs, I grabbed a breakfast burrito and a soda, and I went back upstairs. I had shorts on. I had socks on, but I didn't have my shoes on yet. Mm-hmm. And I sat down, football game was on. About 10, 15, she comes in the door almost storming. She was not happy. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on with her? And she said, uh, do you remember what happened last night? And I said, yeah, about one o'clock you came home. She said, no, later. Do you remember anything happening? And I said, honey, I sure don't. I don't remember anything. I I mean, I was sleeping like death. I was sleeping really good. And she said, pain pills will do that for you, right? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So she said, okay. So she starts, she's kind of storming around the room and she's huffing and puffing and she's not happy. And I can't imagine what's going on in her head. Then she leaves the room and she's just, I'm wondering what is going on. She's nuts. And of course, I've always thought she was a little, but if you were, (laughs) if you were a woman and you had lost two, maybe three babies in the first trimester and you had seen who had taken them, you'd be a little bit nuts, you know? When you talk to somebody after they've been abducted, it's kind of spooky talking to them because they're in a different world. Yeah. It's scary, mm. terrifying. People can't understand that. So she comes back in and she's got a little flashlight about that long. It's a black light. Mm-hmm. And she's going around the room. She turned the lights off. She turned the black light on. There was a sheer curtain between the regular curtain and 
the inside, and this shear was white. And she's hitting it, and there are little flecks of this phosphorescent green all over everything. And there were smudges. And then she goes to her bed, and it's all over the bed, little smudges and little places. Mm-hmm. Her underwear, her clothes, everything. And she finally, she said, okay. She said, are you sure you don't remember anything? I said, I just told you. I don't remember anything. Now it's about 1030. She sits down on the bed. I had my foot up here, the game's on. She went over and she turned the game off and she turned on the lights. And she says, here's what happened. And she says, how's your leg, by the way? And I said, it hurts like hell. And she says, did you sleep okay? And I said, I guess. Yeah. And she says, well, she said at about 3, 3.30, three grays, short ones, came in through the window, through the window, not opening it, passed through it, came in, took her out to the patio, which was three stories up, Mm-hmm. stood her out there, came back in, came over to me and grabbed my leg. Now, I didn't send any letters to any alien groups to come in and take <laughs> care of my leg. They <laughs> grabbed it. They grabbed it. And I fought them. I kicked at them. I yelled at them. I don't remember any of that. She's out there watching it. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> and she looked. And she said, where'd you get those bruises? There were three bruises right here. It was like fingerprints, and this one had a hook on it. And that's what it looked like. On the ankle that had the separated Achilles? Above it. Okay. Above it. And they had grabbed my leg, and she said, they gave you a shot. And she's watching this from the balcony. She's watching it from the, the balcony outside. Okay. And then after they were done with that, they went out through the window. They took her up to the ship where she saw several other people that she recognized from MUFON. That were at the California meeting? At the California meeting, and they were on the ship, and they had been taken at the same time from their different rooms. Do those and, people have... Recollections of it? Some of them do. Okay. Some of them do, and the biggest recollection is seeing each other. Right. They saw each other. You've heard one of Mike's more specific stories, mm-hmm. uh, a unabashedly wild story. I think uh, he he himself would would own up to that. It's pretty wild, and. What we're going to get into next, I've I've always wondered about people who have stories like this, that these really, really intense encounters. Right. Um, you know, in his case, physical, but then obviously it has a huge psychological effect totally. on a person too. Um, so we start out talking about what sort of effect does that have on a person? Yeah, we even, just for some listeners, if you're joining us recently, we did an older episode called what if it really happened, which actually mm-hmm. we had, you know, me and Spencer and, and our buddy and guest Eric Mason had a conversation around, uh, events like this. And if that really happened to you, how would that affect you? And Mike talks about as a guy who this 
really happened to, uh, as he owns, um, how it affected him and how it continues to affect him. Yeah. So we're going to jump in to where Mike is talking about, uh, just sort of what happened after this and, and what the, the outcomes of that previous story were for him and, and his life. Yeah, absolutely. The VA, I was at 60% disability because of my knees. I got both my knees replaced. Mm. I have some anxiety because of, of things that happened, one of which was the stuff with the UFOs. It became obsessive. It became a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and yet I love it, but I hate it. There's nothing I can do about that. Sure. It is the way it is. I cannot avoid it. It's like a man working with poisonous snakes. He loves his job, but he's very cognizant that if he gets bit, he's screwed. Mm. And so it's the same type of deal. Yeah. That's that's a part of this whole phenomenon or whatever you want to call it that I've always wondered about is that has to have a huge effect. Like uh, nothing is the same after that moment, I would think. No, and and for me, it's been going on, like I said, since I was about 10. In high school, (laughs) it was great. They wrote about me in the school paper. They said, well, Mike Knox was out in the football stadium again watching for UFOs. Now, this was in 63, 64 time period in 65. If I had a class that wanted me to give a report, a speech, a – survey, whatever, a book report, if they didn't specifically tell me that I was writing about aardvarks or Perry Mason or some (laughs) other topic and was very specific, it was on UFOs. Do you think that interest that you had was because of experiences you had had and didn't didn't remember yet? I didn't remember them. I didn't know why it was so 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 interesting, but it was... That was the way and, that those um, memories were just yeah. manifesting. And uh, it, it, it came out that way. Um, I kept thinking about what I wanted to do because I was getting ready to graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about a year down the road, and I decided it'd probably be good if I went in the Air Force because I could get close to pilots. And if I was lucky, I could get into radar. Hmm. And that was as far as I went with it. But when I got into the Air Force, because I joined, I didn't want to go over and be fodder in Vietnam, and yet I would have gone if they had drafted me, but I didn't want to. So I wanted to have say about what I was doing. Plus, I wanted to get close to the topic. And the best way to do that is be next to pilots and or radar and work with it. And I did. And, and I got there, and I ended up, I was in surveillance for about two months, the captain came up to me and said, they need somebody over in weapons. Uh, you're not going to like it, I don't think, because it is very difficult. And I said, what will I be doing? He said, well, you'll be keeping logs for an officer and you'll be figuring out air mass problems and reporting weather to pilots and talking on the radio. And I'm going, yeah, let's go. <laughs> Perfect. So I got in there and uh, – Got checked out, and next thing I know, the major called me up to the dice and said, Mike, here's an envelope. Before you open that envelope, I want you to read this pamphlet. And the numbers I remember were Air Force Reg 101-2, but it might have been 
one or whatever. It was a secret document. Mm -hmm. The title was basically the dissemination or non-dissemination of information about unidentified flying objects encountered by the Air Force. And I read it. I signed off on it, promised I'd be a good little boy. <laughs> and it's been over 50 years since I did that. And now I talk about it as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you had to f formally sign something. Oh, yeah. I will not discuss oh, anything yeah. that I see. Absolutely. So, and that was in 66. They were already that. Oh, they were that way back in the 50s. Really? Okay. They've been picking these things up since the early 40s. I thought it was I thought it was funny when you said you were born in 47. Like that's uh that's an important year. 2 for months that. later. Yeah. Uh -huh. 2 months later. Ah. And that's a fact. 2 months after Roswell I was born on a hill in Knoxville, Tennessee. So as you can see, uh you can attribute whatever uh, gravitas you want to but mike was mike was born in the uh in the era of smack dab in the middle smack of, dab of, in the, of middle. the ufo era yeah. yeah um and it's i mean I, I would say it's pretty evident that that wh whether or not it was concretely at the time i mean obviously he was he was a child at the time but um obviously his sort of life trajectory kind of grew as this phenomenon grew as well yeah and i thought it was interesting i don't we couldn't include all of it in there just for time's sake but he talked a lot about how much of an impact the whole idea of ufos and extraterrestrial life had on him from a really young age yeah and he's talking sure. about at age six seven eight having ideas around this and you know in high school all he wanted to do was have a job where he could be around pilots and around radar right. and his whole reason for joining the air force yeah he, was to learn more about ufos yeah he i almost wanted to wanted to pin him into it concretely and he didn't say it specifically but he almost did that essentially he was so fascinated with the ufo concept that he thought that that joining yeah, the Air he, Force. He, he said that in the, in the last Did piece. He, okay, I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe not in those words, but yeah. But but basically, yeah, border, borderline, he basically stated that he joined the Air Force because he knew it was going to give him a closer proximity to a thing that he had this fascination yeah. with, which is which is pretty, pretty wild. So in this next segment, we're going to move into Mike describes his time in the Air Force in more detail, uh, yes. what kinds of things he was working on. And then eventually some of the things that he saw yeah. and re-recorded um, during his time in the Air Force. Yeah. So just a just I guess like a quick primer to add on to that. Mike is originally from Tennessee, as he said. He was born on a hill in uh, Knoxville. In Knoxville. Um, but for a significant portion of his time with the Air Force, he was stationed in the Midwest which included time uh, in Duluth, which, yeah. for those that don't know, is a, a city in northern Minnesota, uh, right on the bottom left nodule of Lake Superior, if you will, um, and and interacted with a lot of the radar systems in Michigan and Minnesota. And up into Canada. Up into Canada as well. So um, he, he, he tells some uh, pretty interesting stories here about his experience uh, working in that field and in that location uh, at that time. 
my primary job was talking to interceptors, was working with an officer and figuring out his what they call the air mass problem, okay. which means I was helping him figure out his intercept and how to set the, the interceptors up to go out and shoot down the target. Of course, it was practice, so we really didn't shoot anybody down because they're buddies with the targets, mm. and then we'd switch off. But I was that's what I was doing, and my main job was to keep the logs, was to handle the computer because the computer we had wasn't like this. It had a five-second lag time in the, when the information went through. We could handle 150 tracks. That's all. 150 tracks. And it was slow as molasses. <laughs> but to a kid out of Tennessee yeah. in 1966, my God, this was Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Any it was great. And you had, a, you had your regular situation display. And then you had your information display, and the mine was this one, his was that one, and you had the map of the area that you're in and the specific fighter squadrons. We had six fighter squadrons. We had uh, two B-52 bases at uh, Grand Forks and K.I. Sawyer. Yeah, K.I. Sawyer. And then uh, we had that one Beaumark site. Okay. And there were other things around that we didn't deal with. Uh, there was the missile ring around Minneapolis, and there was the underground communications of the Navy up all the way across the northern part of the United States using that big iron slab as their, as their uh, antenna hmm. to talk to submarines. And it's ultra-low frequency because it's very, very long. Right. The, the antenna has to be about half of the width of the wave and the wave. And we're talking hundred miles, 150 Mm. miles. So you've got a huge wave that is so broad that it cuts through the water, just like it's not there. And Mm. that's why they've been talking submarines forever, at least since the seventies, since the seventies. Wow. But, that's the environment that I worked in, and it was all the Cold War, and it was all preparing for Russians to come in and blow the hell out of us. Sure. But it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and they knew it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> At least that's what I said when I was 18. Yeah. And later yeah. I wondered, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was working two F-102s over Houghton in Michigan. Mm-hmm. We got a call. These two guys are down here doing their thing, and they're pretty well doing it by themselves. I mean, they know what to do. Mm-hmm. The the in, the uh, officer I had was a lieutenant, uh, first lieutenant. He had been in in Thailand, so he had some experience. So he was pretty pretty cool about anything I said to him. He was, yeah, okay, we can try that. But when I turned to him and I said, I'm gonna take this call, and I reached down and turned my switch and had my microphone on and, and Sawyer Hyde called me. He said, Majority, Sawyer High. Sawyer High, go ahead. It's Majority. He says, yeah. He said, can you guys uh, see that uh, 727 out over Lake Superior? It's a, it's a, a uh, Northwestern. It's flying from Detroit to Winnipeg. And it has a full complement of passengers. 
I don't know how many, 50, 60, something like that, but it was right over Lake Superior. It was north of the peninsula, up on almost the Canadian side, yeah. going that way, 35,000 feet. The pilot called in to Iron Mountain, Michigan, to the radio station. Now, a radio station is what civilian pilots use when they're non-commercial. They call in there to get the weather, to file uh, VFR flight plans because they're going to be flying around and mm-hmm. they just want somebody to know where they are or to report emergencies or strange stuff. This guy was not under positive control. He was flying like they did in the old days. He was on the radio to center, but they didn't have control on him because he they didn't have radar. We had the radar, and that was strictly Air Defense Command. Mm. And they said, do you see him? And I says, give me his position again. Mm-hmm. And there was only one plane out there. I mean, it's sitting right out in the middle. And um, I said, okay. I said, uh, tell the radio guy to get him to uh, squawk standby. So he did. Boop. Squawk flash. Boop. Almost normal. We got a positive uh, contact. Uh, I see him, northwest, whatever the call sign was, 35,000 mm-hmm. feet. And uh, I, everything was in my digital right there. And he said, well, he says, do you see something else there? He said, and they were the two controllers down in Farmington were giggling. Do you see a, uh, another object real close to that plane? And I says, negative. I said, if they're that close... You're not going to see him. He said, well, he said, they say they've got a disc. And this was about 2 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. It was daylight. Yeah, They've got a disc passing over the wings, dipping and diving, coming at them from the front. Everybody on the plane sees it, and they're freaking out. And he said, would you please watch it, and I will call you when he says that the craft is breaking away Hmm. or if something else happens, you keep an eye on them. And I said, okay. So I took the grease pencil and I tapped on the scope and the officer looked at me and I went, UFO. (laughs) And he went. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I said, that's what you said. And he said, well, I heard them talking. I didn't know what they were talking about. So I'm monitoring this and I'm talking to Sawyer Hive once in a while because that's who was that guy was in their area. Mm-hmm. And um, about eight minutes later, they called me and they said, okay, he's breaking south. That's all they said. And I looked, I just touched it with my finger and I looked at the officer and I looked. And here's the 727. And all of a sudden there was a blip, blip. Mm. And it was diminishing. So it was raw. It had no associated IFF, SIF, no transponder, nothing except what we called processed raw data because it had gone through the computer and it was a simulation, but it was correlated. And it wouldn't have shown up until it broke away because otherwise you would Too just close. be getting one. Yeah. Too close. And, and it was overwhelmed by the electronics emissions of the... Right. Of the other aircraft, right. sure, and that, which is good for him, you know. I mean, and but he just, was going it, down or he was going up. 
We couldn't tell which one because we did not have him positively ID'd. Mm-hmm. And if we'd had him positively ID'd, I had him for eight times, which is five seconds, which is about 40 seconds. Okay. And then it just disappeared. And it was gone. I think it probably went down the lake. When it first mm-hmm. started, the the lieutenant said, and he was he became a buddy of mine, he said uh, to the pilot, uh, Mike Lima Zero One, um, are you guys interested in going up and checking out a UFO out in the middle of Lake Superior? And you could hear the guy cussing under his breath. And he says, no, we're not going out there. We do not get feet wet. Uh, they don't like to fly over Lake Superior. If you have to ditch out there, you're dead. Right. Now, here's where it gets fun. That, that wasn't this, fun? I was going to say, Mike, we've been having fun already. I'm this getting gets thrown over here. Like, this gets fun. 60 people on a Northwest Airlines flight seeing a UFO isn't fun? <laughs> I, got, I got up, and I went over, and the Army captain, who was sitting at his scope, he was the interface between us and the um, Nike ring down at the uh, fairground because that's where they had their center. Mm-hmm. You said Nike ring? Yeah. What does that stand for? Nike is the um, type of missile that the Army used for uh, anti-air okay. uh, bombers. Okay. And they had four of them. One was over at Bethel. One was at St. Michael. There was another one and another one around the cities. Got it. And then the control center was at the fairground. And this is for protection of the Twin Cities? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did he still exist? No. Okay. No. So the, but this this is still in the late, or late 60s? Um, mid-60s. Mid-60s, okay. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, this Army guy says to me, Mike, Boy, you guys were making a lot of noise over there. What was going on? <laughs> and I sat down and I told him. And he said, what do you mean? And I took a grease pencil and I'm at the scope here. And I said, come here and sit down. He sat down and I'm drawing it and showing him where everything was and telling him what was transpiring and talking about the guys talking to me and going through the whole thing. I mean, it was, it was just, it was normal for me as far as the way I handled it. But I was very excited because it was really cool. And it was <laughs> it was one of the highlights of my military stuff that sure. I was doing. He said, I want you to stay right here. He said, I'll be back in five minutes. He comes back. That's always got, an ominous thing to say. <laughs> he's got Don't move. He's got a the youngest full bird colonel I'd ever seen. Now the guy was gray-headed. But he would look very young. He wasn't in his early 40s. I mean, he was a fairly young guy. Hmm. And I didn't see him, but I saw the I saw the the captain came in in his army uniform and he sat down and he says, um, Mike, this is Colonel So-and-so. And I turned, and as I turned, he put his hand on me and said, Mike, I understand you've got something you want to talk to me about. <laughs> and he pulled up his chair next to me. And he says, okay, tell me what happened. And I did. I laid it out, just boom, 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 just like I did for you guys. Yeah. And he said, now, here's what I need. And he had a piece of paper in a little notebook, and he's writing down specific needs. I need to know the two controllers, the Alpha 
and the lead at Farmington. I need to know who those guys were that were that were Sawyer High, which is a identifier for guys at Farmington, Minnesota, in the FAA. I need to know who the uh, flight service officer was out at the radio up at um, up on the peninsula. Mm-hmm. I need to know the ETA of the flight, the flight numbers. I said, I've already got that stuff. I need to find out the pilot's name, that kind of information. Yeah. So I just picked up the phone and put my headset on, and I had another phone, a NORAD line, and I called the numbers I needed to call, and I talked to Sawyer High, and I just told them in the blind, I said, I need to know who the controllers were or who you guys, what you guys' names are. I've said, I've got an intel guy here that's looking for that stuff, and he said, so I'm, I'm talking. I got it all. We wrapped it up in a nice, neat little form, and everything was cool. He says, okay. He said, I'm going to finish up here. He picked up the phone, and then he dialed a number on the NORAD line, which was a phone line system that was only for military. Air Force, Navy, Marines were all on it, but civilians weren't on it. Mm -hmm. And they just picked it up, and he just went, and he said, uh, yeah, this is... uh, Colonel so-and-so at uh, Duluth. I need to talk to Bob Dutton or whatever. Is he there? Yeah, just a minute. Hey, Bob, this is Jim. <laughs> yeah, listen, I need for you to have a team go down to the airport at Winnipeg. And we've got a, an aircraft coming in, ETA, in about 20 minutes. When they hit the tarmac, you need to get all those people including the personnel that worked on the plane, into a room and debrief them. It might take you several hours, but we need to find out exactly what they saw. It's one of those deals. And the conversation was, you know, very friendly. And he finished. He got off and he said, that's a friend of mine that's an intelligence officer at an Army um, um, Canadian Army missile site and they are going to cover it for us. They're going to go down and debrief them find out what's going on. He said, Mike, you did a wonderful job. You handled it perfectly. So when you say debrief, they were trying to get information from they were the passengers? Just going to talk to them, all of them. Okay. Everybody on that plane was going to get juiced. They were going to find out what happened. And he he wasn't trying to cover it up. I mean, he, you know, he was very, very kind. Um, Something happened maybe four or five years ago, and they're they're coming to get me. (laughs) Four four, four or five years ago, (laughs) something, something. They do sound close, don't they? I just. Probably somebody shot somebody over here. If that wasn't already <laughs> one of the better UFO stories you've heard and yeah. better documented, it, it's that that one right there would probably be, had I not heard the story you're about to hear, the best firsthand UFO story I've ever heard. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, as, you know, as like cats like you and I who 
I, I don't know what the right word is. Are we enthusiasts? Are we sure? Yeah, I guess enthusiasts is maybe is the word, but we're not in quite as deep as Mike is, but we're interested. Yeah, we're interested. We're, we dabble. We dabble, and 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 you know, again, if you listen to parts one and two, you know that we've researched a lot of stories, and um, but the but the the difficulty, I guess, is that a lot of the things that we've uncovered thus far are third party or right. fourth party or are. You know, people who heard something from someone and then are retelling that story, etc. We sat down for a couple hours last night with a guy yeah. who picked up a UFO on radar. Yeah. And filed an official Air Force report on yeah. it. Yeah. And also, you know, obviously we won't have the time or ability to do it before we release this, but there's a small part of me that was like, could we do a Freedom of Information Act request as it relates to yeah. his name and, and maybe pull some of these things? I mean, I... Think we could? I, I, I've don't. Not, I've not done one before. Yeah, I don't I'm not really either. know what that process is like. I haven't either. But there was a small part of me that wanted to, just as it relates mm. to you know how concretely he describes this event at this time. I mean, he gives some pretty concrete dates and times, and yeah. and and people who were involved. And um, yeah, you know, there's a small part of me that wants to FOIA some of that and see if if we could get some more specific documentation. Maybe who knows? Maybe that's a that's an experience that someone just never foiled and there might be some behind that yeah. that door. Uh, this next story, I, I don't think we'd be able to yeah, f- file a Freedom of Information yeah, no, Act. No, not about. a not a lot of uh, not a lot of official paperwork no. happened here. So we're gonna Mike is gonna take us even further out and uh, and to, further forward in in time as yeah, well. Yeah, we're moving all the way up to 2016 yeah. now. Fall of 2016, I think we're in November. And uh Mike is about to tell us a story about a close encounter of the third slash fourth kind. Yeah, I guess that, fourth. That he had on his uh property in uh western Wisconsin. He he has some hunting land that he hunts on up there. Yeah. And um, he, he's going to pick up kind of right at the beginning, but he's uh, he's out on his hunting property by himself in November of 2016. In northern Wisconsin, he's got a he's got a trailer and a shed, and sometimes yeah. he lives up there for a period of time to hunt deer. And uh, what you're about to hear is uh, happens, I, I guess, over a series of eight nights. Well, so he's going to tell us one night of the story. Okay. Um, this experience continued according to him over a period of, so for the next seven days following the story that he's about to tell. Yes. Word. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, we'll let Mike tell it. Everything started popping at about four fifteen in the afternoon. It was daylight. I was sitting in my blind and I was waiting for dark, and I was waiting for deer to come through because I was on a uh, where two or three trails come together, and there's beds over here, and there's beds down that way about 75, 80 yards away from me. And the, um, the deer started coming out in threes, fours, and fives, but within 15 minutes, I had had about 25 deer traversed me in front and behind, and they just went right around me. They weren't close enough to shoot or it was too thick to shoot, and they went and they laid down about 30 to 50 yards from me, spread out. And the ones that were not laying down, there were a couple of fawns, 
that were still picking over there, but most of the big deer had laid down. And like I say, 25. And that was weird, but it didn't click. I just felt fortunate, and I thought one was going to come in and be able to put it in the freezer. Sure. Yeah. But it didn't It didn't happen that way. And I'm sitting there, and there's one big buck. He was a real nice, pretty deer. He was uh, right there, and he wasn't. He wasn't more than 30 yards. He was real close. And he kept looking, but he wasn't looking at me. He was looking the direction they came from. But I still didn't figure it out. So it got dark. It was 5.30, quarter to 6. I should be out of the woods. And a bear comes in. And it's there's stump over here. And you could tell by the stump that he had been working on it for days. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was all tore up, and I've got bears all over the property, and I've only got 10 acres, and there's 19,000 acres right across the road from me, wow. and there's a 400 acres to my east, and, you know, yeah. and i got bears everywhere. So I'm sitting there watching this thing screwing around, and he wasn't a big bear. He's maybe a yearling, two years old. Were you up in a blind? I was down on the ground, okay, and he was right there, but I... I'm used to it. And mm-hmm. I had a 41 Smith mag in my laying next to me. And I, of course I had my bow. I was bow hunting, but that 41 Smith is, is my insurance policy. Mm-hmm. And bear I wouldn't <laughs> shoot. I wouldn't shoot the bear unless he tried to come in with me. And then I'd shoot him. What I would do though, if he started getting weird is I would shoot into the ground oh, and scare the crap scary. out of him. Right. And he would haul ass well, or he would leave. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I said <laughs> you can cuss. It's all right. You, yeah. So anyway, plenty of cussing. So. Anyway, um, I, I said the heck with this and I grabbed everything and I'm heading back. I unzipped and he took off. I head back to the camp and it was about a hundred, 150 yards. And I get there and I start stripping everything off. I leave my bow, my gun, everything on the picnic table. It's not raining. It's misting a little bit of snow. I lit my fire up. I had it all set. I poured gas on it, lit it up, had a fire going, had all my dirty clothes off except for my sweats. And then I went inside to get my camera because I thought the UFOs would be back tonight because they were back every night. Mm-hmm. And I'd get out there and take try to take pictures of them, but I was having a heck of a time because my cameras were not situated for doing that so i went in there i've got a sandwich i got the camera i got the big flashlight and uh, i stepped out the door and when i opened that door and i looked out there were five little short guys four of them were about three foot and one was about a foot taller they all had a little white light I had never even considered that aliens coming up to see you are going to be carrying a little bit white light, <laughs> but it only made sense because there's they woods, there's, yeah. you know, you're going to fall Bears. down and whatever, <laughs> but that's not why they had it. Not a flashlight. No, it was a weapon, but I didn't know that. I didn't find that out until I talked to um, Kathleen Martin. And I was telling her about it, and she says, Mike, those little white lights are to help to subdue you. Mm. They affect your mind 
so that you cannot take action. And if you take action, they can use them to knock you out. And if you get too rambunctious, they really can kill you. And I said, well, that's good to know. <laughs> you know, I mean. When five of them show up outside my, my door. God, they, you know, next time I'll know when they got the little lights that I could end up in trouble. I guess that's a nice thing to learn later and not know right in the moment. (laughs) Man, I'm going to tell you. But anyway, I watched them and they started walking towards me. Now, the reason I know exactly how far they were is because I had a blind that was from my trailer to that blind was 80 yards because it's my winter blind when it's nasty and cold and I've got a heater in it. I go down there and I sit and I th- look for stupid deer that don't have sense <laughs> enough to go get warm. And I just sit there and wait. So I knew that that was 80 yards. So that's where they were staging. Now behind them was the marsh. And that was at about 100 yards because I was about 20, 25 yards off the marsh. And it was out, but it was fairly dry. There was no snow on the ground yet. And it was fairly dry, and I could see lights and shapes moving up and down. And I could see other, I don't know if it was creatures or what, but they were spotty lights all over the all over the property. And up in the trees, there were craft that were about 200 yards away and moving around. And there was one that was down there. On the other side of the creatures I was looking at that had a blue glow to it. And all of a sudden, they were getting up close to me at about 50 yards. There was a great old big tree, and I hit them with my flashlight. I I shined it at them, and they scattered. They don't like light in their face because their eyes are so big. They're a nocturnalish type creature. And so they scattered. Now, I think that there, I had some missing time in there because things don't add up. I had everything figured out linearly the way that I could remember it. Mm-hmm. But when I get to this part of it, it gets a little confusing because why would they be 50 yards from me and then they're 80 yards away from me again? Right. And they, I remember them separating at some point. Okay. And I remember that blue shape that was about the size of a kid's swimming pool, little bitty, mm-hmm. about two, three feet off the ground. And something was either standing or sitting on it, very tall, very slender, and very, very different than those grays. And it was coming towards me, and it came up to my 500-gallon propane tank and took a, a left, my right and went around this way. When they when that thing came up, I remember thinking to myself, boy, do I feel dizzy. Mm-hmm. She was working on me. I could see those eyes. The only thing I could look at were the eyes. I couldn't even get I couldn't even get a shape of the head. All I knew it was tall. Whatever it was was tall. I can't tell if it was sitting or standing. Because those eyes consumed me. And she turned. And I say she because I met her again later. Mm -hmm. Up on the craft. 
And I think that's who it was. <sighs> then I'm watching this craft and I noticed, and I, I told you about the, the uh, um, raccoon. Remember that? No. I don't think, I don't think you did. did 20 you? yards away from me, over here, I've got a, a spool that wire used to be on. It's plastic. It's black plastic. Mm -hmm. It's got a hole down the middle of it, and I use it to hold my arrows when I'm shooting target. Sure. sure. So I've got that thing sitting there, and I looked, and there's a raccoon wrapped around it looking at me. <laughs> I must have been going under. They were getting control of my head because mm -hmm. when I looked at it, it was a raccoon, and I looked back up at the craft, and I'm screaming at this guy. Please don't take me. I don't want you to take me away. I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. I'm afraid you're not going to bring me back. I said, come on down here and we'll go in and sit down. I got frozen pizza. <laughs> I got stuff to drink. I'm yeah. serious. This is what yeah. I was saying. Yeah. Because the only thing I had keeping me awake was my humor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I did that and it wasn't 30 seconds after I finished talking. I felt very, very good. I felt mm -hmm. very calm. They they calmed me down. Right. They let me know everything's cool. I looked back over there. I'd never seen a white raccoon before mm. with no hair. Mm -hmm. And then it hit me. It was another little gray. There were six of them, not five, and it was over here. And behind it, there was this huge red I don't know if it was a globe or a disc or what, but it was red and it was scary looking. The color was just intense. Mm. And it was over the trees up there from where the the little little guy was to the other side of the trees where there was an open place where this this UFO was sitting. It would go up and down. It never landed, but it just stayed right there watching me. And it was big. I mean, it was maybe 30, 40 feet across, and it was 50 yards from me going up and down watching. And it all started happening together. Wow. And then everything was gone. The craft was sitting up there, and I waved to it because I could tell that it was starting to and I saw a face in the back porthole. There were three portholes on each side. There was a face looking at me. And I said, bye. And there was a ripple effect of golden lights underneath the front all the way to the back. It just went like a, like a wave at a football game mm -hmm. coming back. And then it just gone. was gone. It went down there. It landed. And then my buddy's car. I had called them earlier. They'd been driving for almost two hours, came up, pulled in the driveway, and a Claxton went off. You've heard um, what the uh, siren on a uh, ambulance or a cop car in Europe sounds like. Yeah. Okay. That went off down there. And there was a very loud bang, like somebody dropped the the tailgate on a truck that was real long mm -hmm. and hit the ground. And then there was a very loud noise behind me, and I don't know what that was. But my, the car was coming, turning into the driveway. All of a sudden, 
everything was gone, not a sound. Hmm. The only sound I hold, heard the whole time, the only sound I heard was when those uh, that siren went off and those loud bangs of the, like a tailgate hitting the ground. That was it. So none of the crafts as they moved were making any sound at all? Not just, a sound. Wow. And not, none of the, the grays? Nothing. Grays wow. made no sound? No, was there any communication at all with the with the creatures? Yeah, other but, than the, but the big one, yeah, other the than the invite one. for pizza and beer. When the big <laughs> one, when the big one came up to me, I was in, I was inside the craft. They had, huh, okay, I'm gonna back up just a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. the li- the five little ones were coming toward me. Then they scattered and they were gone. They went back down there. There, like I say, there was something wrong there, and that's when I saw the the creatures. I think there were four, and then one tall one. The the other four were short. I can't tell you what they were because they were standing upright, but they had a very pale complexion, and I wasn't close enough to get a good feel for how they were made up. And then. Under hypnosis, in January, I found out the little ones coming up were coming right behind it. And when it turned, I did not remember any of this. But on there, I said, okay, uh, the five of them are about 20 yards away from me. At the other side of the propane tank, they have followed the other one up here. And then that was it. I didn't remember anything. Under hypnosis, one had this arm, one had this arm. There were two standing there. There was the tall one there. They still had their lights. And then I'm on a table in a curved room, and there's not a light. The whole room is illuminated, but it's like it's one big illumination that's built in. It's not It's not like a light. It's just daylight. Mm-hmm. And you could see everything, but it was not glaring. There was a door, like a, like a door on a ship, like a hatch. And all the, all the little guys were grabbing this leg. They were looking at this leg, which told me that they were interested in seeing if that shot had helped. Same leg. Mm. One of them had this arm, and I had broken this arm June a year ago. Uh, uh, within five months of when, or six months of when this was happening with the aliens. Mm-hmm. And one of them held it, and they must have squeezed it because it hurt. And it had it still got some pain to it. But it, I must have moaned or groaned or screamed or jerked or something. I remember seeing this little guy holding it like he hold a puppy hmm. and petting it, and hmm. all the pain went away. And then all of the little grays moved up against the wall, and they're standing over there, six or seven of them. I don't remember how many. They're standing there, and I turned because I sensed that something was coming through the door, and this, <laughs> this creature, seven or eight feet tall, comes in completely clothed, but it wasn't tight fitting. It was sort of flowing. 
and comes toward me and hand goes here and in my mind it says we're not going to hurt you you don't have to be afraid you miss teaching your children you miss telling your stories to the children don't you and I said yeah in my head I mean I was thinking that because I do miss teaching I don't miss the politics but I miss the kids Mm -hmm. and I could hear her voice and it reminded me so much the feeling I had when she was there was my grandma when I was about nine years old and I was sitting on her lap and she's rocking me humming to me Mm. and talking to me that's the way I felt when this one was doing that and it was on purpose this creature was very very sweet Hmm. had her hand there and she says we want you to continue telling your stories wow we're not going to hurt you and i wanted to ask her but i at that point i was not even thinking about it why in the hell are you folks still coming around after all these months every friggin night Right. Why? But I didn't. And then I woke up, and I I wasn't completely awake, but I was aware that there was a smell. And then I knew it was mothballs. In my trailer, I put mothballs around to keep the mice out. Mm -hmm. Help keep the mice out. You don't keep them out. Help (laughs) keep the mice out. Sure. And then I, I woke up, and I looked around, and I'm sitting on my couch. And I jumped up real quick. This is before my buddy came in. And I go out and I'm looking. And everything was down there. And they're getting ready to go. And here comes the car. And everything's gone. Now, they did see a red object go across the marsh from right to left heading east. And... Uh, Craig did see some small lights up in the trees back over across the way. Mm-hmm. But as far as seeing all the other stuff. It's gone already. Yeah. Man, that is an amazing story. Well, it's not over. It's, uh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> It's not over indeed. I kind of have a sneaking suspicion that with Mike Knox, it's almost never over. Uh, He he is a man of a million stories, it seems. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, if, if you didn't, if you didn't notice, well, this probably was not the most remarkable part of the last uh, however many minutes of what you just heard, uh, but we did kind of slide into some original audio that uh, Mike was kind enough to share with Spencer and I. Yeah, he referenced it a couple times in there, but he, he carries around this little handheld audio recorder with him because um, I don't think we mentioned it earlier, but Mike is also a um, a field investigator for MUFON. Yep. Um and so he had this audio recorder with him the night that all of this was happening, and he was running tape for a lot of it. Right. Um, and he shared some of that audio with us. So yeah. we, we dropped a little bit of it in there in the parts of the story that where it made sense. Yeah. Um, um, but that is probably – I mean, even though I think in some ways, like, you can kind of feel his energy and, like, the way that he's talking about what is happening, you know, ostensibly while it's happening mm-hmm. – um, that in some ways pales in comparison to the uh, 
the abduction that he talks about. Yeah. Um, and having that experience and I guess uncovering that experience, I don't, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. I can't fully, fully break that down, but that's sort of the way that and he that, talks about it is that it was sort of uncovered later. Um, well, he, he talks about recalling the majority of that, the, well, the, the stuff ab- aboard the craft and with the actual aliens. Yeah. Um, I think most of that was recovered or recalled during hypnosis. Right. Which is always sort of messy to yeah. me. I I, yeah. I I don't really put a ton of faith in that. Right, um, I agree. I think I, one thing that in in just to not to I I guess so we have one more bit here, and I I kind of want to lengthen this part out really quick because I just want to talk about one thing, which is that, yeah. um, you know, I think Spencer and I come at everything we talk about on the What It podcast with like. I would say a very healthy dose of skepticism. I mean, we try mm-hmm. to, um, and at the same time, one of the things that we struggle with as well is with that healthy dose of skepticism, also lacking judgment for people's perceived personal experiences, you know, yeah. and, and, and never wanting to cheapen that or, um, or, or roast that, you know, like I, 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 I don't have one of these experiences, so I can't tell that right. story, and that, I can't judge what someone who has that story says. Um, there was a moment last night when we were out on the deck with Mike. We after, we stayed for a while after we were done talking to him and yeah. recording, and when it got dark, we stepped out on his deck with him, and we were looking at stars, and Mike was pointing out UFOs to us, which yeah. to me looked like stars. And, and to me as well, or satellites, but yeah, no, there and I was, have seen a lot of stars and a lot of satellites. And right, that's I mean, having, what it looked like having looked at the night sky a lot, there was nothing that appeared out of the ordinary to me. But me to too. Mike, it was it was different. Yeah, and I, he could after half an hour of pointing stuff out to us and me saying I didn't see it, he you know I could he wasn't upset but i could tell he was a little a little frustrated and and he asked us at one point are you guys experiencers meaning have you had experiences with ufos or with aliens or with right. i think just generally weird shit yeah and you know we both told him no like, we we haven't it's just something we've always been interested in yeah and i don't remember exactly what he said but it was something to the extent of like oh okay right you'll you'll, you'll see it when you see it yeah yeah, and he—I I think to him it was sort of, you can't see it yet, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I and I think I even—I don't know if I was, you know, I think I think maybe part of me was trying to be, you know, conversational and maybe a little bit benevolent in my conversation. I said something to the effect of, you know, well, we, you know, we don't have we don't have the trained eyes that you have. Like you've been mm-hmm. out here a long time and. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I just, I have a hard time kind of being in the middle of this thing where I'm not seeing what you're seeing, but I'm not prepared to necessarily say that your experience is, is right. wrong or is false or is, or is whatever, you know, there's a, even Mike himself in a lot of these stories. I mean, even, you know, I I would say even more than what we even kept in from, you know, for what it's worth, you guys are getting like an hour's worth of, we recorded about two and a half hours worth of audio with Mike. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he, he said a lot of things about, um, uh, P- 
people maybe feeling like he's crazy or mm-hmm. other people that he's interacted I, with I, uh, come across as crazy. And, and, and I don't think that that's a word that I ever want to put onto somebody who is in this world, you know, it's, and, and he by no means is. No, he, and that, he's and like that's, the normalest, and, nicest guy. And that's what makes it so hard for me as someone who hasn't had these experiences is yeah. trying to trying to hold both of those ideas at the same time. Yeah, that totally. You, I, you know, I've spent not a lot of time, but a fair amount of time talking yeah. with you in depth about things, and you seem, you know, I've I've been around and spent a lot of time with a lot of mentally ill people in a lot yeah. of different ways, right? You're not that. No, not at all. Not even a little bit. I mean, right. he was the kindest, most generous. What can I get you to drink? Like, yeah. has a he bragging about very, his kids and his grandkids. Very smart, very coherent, sharp dude. Yeah, and and trying to simultaneously hold that idea and the idea of all these stories that you just told me. Right. In my head, at the same time. It's a really difficult thing to do. Definitely. It, yeah. I, the stories are so unbelievable that I want to, it would be easier to just discount them. Right. But everything else about you doesn't make me want to discount anything that you say. Yeah. And I would say too, not just the, not just like everything about him from sort of like a peripheral experience, but just like talking to him just for a as couple a dude hours. Yeah. as a dude like the way that he comes across the way that he expresses himself everything about everything he communicated to us seemed so um urgent and specific and mm-hmm. uh you know a lot of the energy that i think we communicated that we experienced from him at the at the mufon meeting that i think originally drew us to him all of those characteristics i think held very true throughout the entirety of our of our time with him um and there were these moments where he was pointing out things and seeing things that we just weren't experiencing and Mm -hmm. um that's a that's kind of a hard in between to to land at where like i mean i mean there's this dissonance between between the two that is one of the hardest parts about all of these topics to me is because there's not, it's all. Uh, how am I? What am I trying to say? It's there's no hard evidence of right. any of these things, right. and it's all just based on what people have seen, what people have reported. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, you get some trace physical evidence, but it's never conclusive. Right, and you you have to. If you're going to believe these things, you have to believe the person. Right. And trying to remedy that with Mike seems like a very believable person. Right. And so do thousands of other people who have had these experiences or have claimed to have these experiences. Right. Those, both things can't be true. Yeah. These, these stories can't be fictitious and these people can't all be honest people. And and at the same time, all it would take is for one of these stories to be true for it to basically all be true. Sure. And I, and I think the thing to your point about what makes it hard is that as people who are curious and, and conversational with these topics and with these people is we don't really have grounds to 
decide either way. You know what right. I mean? I mean, like right. I, you know, yes, Mike said he saw some things on his on his deck last night that I didn't see, mm-hmm. and there could be a full part of me that says, "Hey, he's." pointing out stars and thinks they're UFOs and that means that he's X, Y, or Z. But I'm not I'm not prepared to make that make that leap because I just don't think that it's right for me to judge his experience, especially as far back as obviously you guys have heard so far. Like as right. far back as his experience goes. Does, does that not, discount an experience he had in the sixties? Yeah, yeah. No. Like I'm not prepared to make that judgment on another person. And I think maybe it's some you know, at some existential realm, maybe that's kind of part of what the web podcast is about is like entertaining these concepts mm-hmm. without judging them. I mean, I know where, we where it would be easier to just things. dismiss them. Yeah. And, and I know we, I know we do that sometimes. We, I mean, we, you know, we bust on stuff, but also when it comes to the human element of the expression of these topics and these concepts, I'm not prepared to make those types of judgments on, on people and their experiences. Cause I, I don't have, I don't have something solid in either direction to make me concretely go, I'm right and Mike is wrong. I don't. Right. I just don't. Right. You know, and in in the way that he expresses his experience and his passion for that experience and his honestly, his enjoyment of that experience. I mean, as much as he communicated also mm-hmm. some of the difficulties, and actually I think well, we're he, about to get into some of that. Yeah. And he uh, spoke on that earlier. You know, he's yeah. he's drawn to it, he loves it, but it's also scary. Tough. And he has a feeling that right. it you know, a, a sense that it's dangerous yeah. and but yeah, at the last the last piece we're going to play, um, it, we were asking Mike just sort of about how do you uh, how do you go on with your life after all of these experiences that you've had, and yeah, and how do you uh, remedy these these things just for yourself, yeah, um, and specifically as a as a religious person, how do how do those things add up or not add up? Yeah, Mike uh, Mike expressed to us that. Um, during one of his encounters, he basically it was went. The, it was the story he was he was telling earlier. Yeah, the November his, eight day yeah, kind of story. Yeah. He he, um, he went directly inside and uh, not in what we have on tape here, but what he expressed at the move on meeting was that he went right inside and started uh, saying a Catholic prayer. You know, he he was reciting that as a mm-hmm. as sort of the only thing he knew how to do in that moment. Um, and I was we were uh, you know curious to know how he sort of justifies some of his religious beliefs with mm-hmm. the experiences that he's had um, and and how he kind of takes those things and puts them together and how he uses both of those things and then continues to uh, move forward. When you told us that story about being on your hunting property, um, you told us you ran inside and you said a prayer because it was the first thing that Absolutely. came to your mind. Absolutely. And I glanced the Bible to the left here too. And does it ever, you know, I, I don't know your faith and, and all that. And Roman I, and Catholic. I, okay. And I don't want to. With a touch of whatever alienism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've had discussions with priests. Sure. Is How do you fit those things together? Or do you? Or do you try? Yeah, or, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, it started when I was about in second or third grade. I had nuns. I was in a Catholic school. And I remember one day I asked the stupidest question. Sister had been teaching us about angels. And it bothered me that they had wings because 
I knew I had seen some stuff on TV and they talked about no air in space. And if heaven is out in space somewhere and these angels are flying back and forth with their wings. Now, remember, I'm third grader, fourth grader, that age group. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they, you know, they're going to have to come through no air and wings aren't going to help you move, but they're still coming here. How, why is that, sister? And she smiled at me and patted me on the head. She says, good idea, Michael, and turned around and walked away from me. Now, that was when I was real little. And I started thinking about this stuff real early. It was almost as if somebody had planted in my mind that uh, there's more to this than than what you're learning. Now, what you're learning is teaching you ideas to live by. But realities are way, way stranger than you can imagine. And um, as I got older and, and when I was in Catholic high school, um, I had a Father Brett. Father Brett was a good guy, kind of straight-laced, but he was a good guy. And he was teaching us... Uh, about um, the things that the angels would do. And they were seen in the Old Testament as strangers coming into town from somewhere else, outer space. They were angels, but they were people. And they were walking amongst the Jews and the Gentiles and whoever, and they were picking up mud off the ground and spitting in it and curing people's eyes and curing people that are hurting or sick or crippled. And the only thing I could think of was technology. They had a technology. Now, you know, as you're, when you're a kid and even a lot of, of people today think of things that God does as magic. No. Everything that God does is what he does. He does it all. He's, he's done everything. But angels are probably not necessarily winged creatures or spirits because the Old Testament, they never talked about them as spirits. They were physical beings. And these physical beings have the technologies that have made it appear that it was magic to these sheep herders and these camel drivers and even their intellectuals didn't have the whole story. But it had to be civilizations and it's like, it's like around the neighborhood. You got people in your neighborhood that are really good people, do anything for you. You trust them with your life. And you got others that just really are self-centered or they, they really have too much on them and they, you don't get along. And then you got other people that are just plain evil. And these evil people, it's just like throughout the universe. There, there's no difference. There's good and there's things that aren't good. There's kindness and caring and loving and following the, following the, the old man's rules. And then there's ones that are absolutely opposed to it. That's the way I've dealt with it. And I just, I just extrapolated 
And um, instead of saying that uh, they're spirits and they, you know, twang, you're cured, it's not necessarily that way. The ideas and the, the, the philosophy is there for a reason. But the reality of, of how it works, I mean, my God, how long did it take people to figure out the uh, physics that we use today to, to travel in outer space? And, th and it was always there, but they didn't know it. It's, that's the same thing. It's the same type of deal. And there's so much we don't know yet. There's so much we don't understand. And yet you gotta you gotta always wake up and smile and say, yep, maybe we'll find out today. <laughs> That's how I deal with it. That's Mike's stories. For yeah. You, or at least a couple of them. Yeah, at least a couple of them. I yeah. thought that was a, a really beautiful take at, at the end there. Just and and something I've wondered about a lot of, of like radio waves have always been here. Right math and science and anything any knowledge that we have has always been available to us sure it takes time it takes you know teamwork it takes evolution it takes whatever you want to call it right but that's always it's always been there and and we're also what's always been there we're constantly building upon too right. you know and i think a, a large part of what he I don't want to speak for him, but I, at least as far as I received from him, especially in that last bit there, is he he definitely feels like it's not all knowable. Yeah, you know that yeah. you know that that what he knows and what I know and what you know and what everyone knows is is what it is to it an will, extent. And we're all con constantly building upon what we know, but also that even our process of building upon what we know isn't enough to know it all. Yeah. It will never be everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think honestly, like, you know, that, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before that last bit, which is just that for a guy like that to say, I've had these experiences and I can't, you know, I have some ideas and some thoughts about them but I don't know it all and we don't know it all. I'm just yeah. trying to know a little more every day. Like, I kind of feel like that's the only reason you and I are here, right. <laughs> you know, like doing right. this thing. And, uh, um, yeah, I love that philosophy. Yeah. Today might be the day that we figure that figure we, it out. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever it may be. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess that's why we're going to keep coming back at you <laughs> week after week. Yep. And we'll, we'll try to know a little more. Um, that's going to do it. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from mike yeah and uh yeah every once in a while if we've got something extra special lined up we might might do an extra episode here and there yeah um we just it just felt wrong to not give you guys our our conversation with mike so yeah in in at least as much fullness as as kind of made sense uh, yeah. again we we talked for almost three hours and and had a blast with him again him and his wife were super gracious to have us into their home and 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 chat and relax and yeah and um and tell us stories and um yeah we, we wanted to give you at least as much of that as has made sense uh to to talk about his stories all right that's gonna do it we'll see you all next week yes sir and uh yeah be good have a good weekend we love you bye 
We'll be back next week with another episode of the What If Podcast. Learn more at www.whatifpodcast.com.